book of John, chapter 12. As you're turning there, I'm sure you've noticed that Jesus was given to what we would call paradoxical statements. They don't really seem to fit together. For instance, Jesus says, it is in laboring that we find rest. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you shall find rest for your soul. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You'll find exactly what you need when you labor with me in my yoke. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of Christ, and we who know that kind of relationship to Jesus can agree. It is indeed something that is true, even though it may seem paradoxical. Jesus also says, it is in giving that we receive. Give, and it will be given to you. We do not give in order to get more. We just give because the Lord tells us to. But the wonderful thing which happens when we are good stewards and generous with those resources of material nature that He gives to us, then He does give back to us because He knows He can trust us with what He has given us. And then we just read from Mark chapter 8, Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels shall save it. What's Jesus saying? Dying leads to living. We're going to look at Jesus' teaching on this particular paradox, if you will, in John chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. You'll follow along in whatever version you have in your hand. John 12, 20 says, Now there were certain Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These therefore came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and they told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. But he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the last recorded ministry of Jesus in public before his death. It is in what we call Holy Week. The triumphal entry of Christ has occurred the day before at least, maybe two days before this last act of public ministry. And... He goes silent after that until he is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and taken to the place of false judgment and finally to the judgment of God upon him when God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. In this scene, which we just read, there are three either groups pairs, or individuals. 
let's consider the first group. It's a group of inquirers. They are seeking to know Jesus. Verse 20 says, Now there were certain Greeks among them who were going up to worship at the feast. Therefore, these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. That's a beautiful statement, that last statement by these Greeks. We know the Greeks sought more insight. It was endemic, native to the mind of a Greek person, especially certain ones of them, to want to know more and more and more. These particular Greeks were Greeks who were probably proselytes. That means they were people who had been in synagogues somewhere, perhaps in Greece or other parts of the Mediterranean basin, and they had heard about this God whom the Jewish people worshipped. They had rubbed shoulders, perhaps, with them in commerce or in everyday life. And they were drawn to the possibility of there actually being only one true God who was not an impersonal God, but a God who was a personal God. And among those who were going up to worship at the feast, this would have been the Passover, they were to be found. And they wanted to see Jesus. Sir, we would see Jesus. Now that should happen every time we come to the place of worship. People should see Jesus. He should see, be seen in what we do as a congregation in worship, but also as we look into the Word of God, knowing that the Bible in its entirety bears witness to the person of Jesus Christ, of course, including what we know as the Old Testament. Sir, would we would see Jesus, they said to Philip. If you look back at verse 19... It's not part of this primary text for the morning message. But look at it. The Pharisees therefore said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. They were saying, these Pharisees, and we know who they were, they were most respected of all the religious sects within Judaism of the day. They were saying, the whole world is going to them. And here we have an illustration in the next verse as these Greeks were coming in hopes of knowing the Lord. The second group of people we see in this passage of Scripture are what I would call insiders. Look at verse 22. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and they told Jesus. And Jesus answered them saying, Now, Philip and Andrew were from the same town, Bethsaida. Bethsaida was near the Sea of Galilee, and near Bethsaida was a region called Syrophoenicia. It was a Greek-inhabited area. And perhaps these Greeks, some of them might even have known Philip and Andrew in that region. But certainly they would have known their names, and they knew that they bore not... Hebrew names, rather they bore Greek names. Philip means lover of horses, and the word Andrew means manly. And they come to them, first to Philip, and then what do we see Philip do? He comes and tells Andrew. 
Now, what do you recall about Andrew after he came to know the Lord Jesus? Do you remember what happened? First thing he did, the Bible says he went and found his brother Simon. We know him as Peter. So Andrew, wherever we encounter Andrew, whether it's in the feeding of the 5,000, he was the one who brought this little boy who shared his lunch, as it were, with Jesus, and Jesus multiplied it to feed 5,000 plus people. He's always seemingly bringing people to Jesus. Philip was aware of that. Philip, by the way, he was one who brought his good friend Nathaniel too. Jesus found him in Galilee, and upon having been introduced to Jesus and having a brief encounter with him, he believed in Christ as the Messiah. He came and got his friend and brought him to see Jesus. Both of these men were people who led family members or friends to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that Jesus does not answer the Greeks. He answers the apostles. What do we make of that? Well, the apostles, these men who waited until they collaborated before they went together to tell Jesus, they're perhaps a little bit timid to tell Jesus because when Jesus sent them out, to do their first mission. Remember, Jesus sent them in pairs, and He told them, don't go into the way of the Gentiles, and don't go to the villages and cities of Samaria. Go only to the lost sheep of Israel. So Jesus' primary mission to begin with, and that which He gave to the apostles, was to take the gospel message to the house of Israel. So there was some timidity on their part, perhaps, because of this. But what had Jesus recently told these men? Go back over to John chapter 2, and let's look at what Jesus has to say. In verse 16, He's talking about His being the Good Shepherd. He's talking about His sheep. But in verse 16, He broadens the tent as far as who is eligible to be a sheep of His. Look at verse 16. He says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they shall hear My voice, as they shall become one flock with one shepherd. In Ephesians 2, Paul talks about how Jesus Christ, who is our peace, has torn down the barrier. That barrier which Paul was talking about was the barrier between those who were descendants of Abraham and those who were not. Those who were Jewish people and those who were Greeks, if you will, Gentiles. And Jesus broke down the dividing wall. He was alluding to the wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple in Jerusalem. And no Jewish person would allow a Gentile to come across that wall. In fact, the wall around the outer part of it was lined with warning to any Gentile, if you cross this barrier, you do it at your own risk. You will be killed if you do. But that's what Jesus has done, isn't it? He's broken down all kinds of barriers, racial barriers, cultural barriers, all kinds of barriers that exist, that people have built up. And Jesus was reminding His men here, in John chapter 10, and these two men had been present. It might not quite have 
sunk into their consciousness. They remember having heard it, I'm sure, but they were still a little bit tempted, timid in that way. So Jesus is one who is interested in drawing all men to himself. We're not going to get to that part later in this great chapter where Jesus says that if I am lifted up, what was he talking about, by the way, when he was talking about being lifted up? He was talking about his crucifixion. What does he say? I will draw some men to myself. Is that what he said? I will draw all men to myself. He's not talking about universalism here, that all people will come to know Him and have eternal life. He's talking about, I'll bring all kinds of tribes and tongues and peoples and nations together. In anticipation of what the Bible says in the Revelation in the 5th chapter and the ninth and 10th verses, that around the throne of God will be assembled a vast throng of people whom Christ has saved from their sins. And it will be comprised of people from all different groups in the world. So these insiders come. Now, let me say this. There is strong implication, at least to me, when I read this, that Jesus is saying, look, introduce people to me. He wants us who know Him as Lord and Savior, we in whom He dwells, We who have taken on His yoke, and by the way, that image which Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 11, 28 and following as a yoke is be submitted to Him. And then He says, learn from Me. And the word learn is the verb from which the noun disciple is derived. Be discipled by Me. The only way that we can be disciples of Jesus is to take the yoke upon us. And the result of that is we're going to be used by the Lord to introduce other people to Him and help them in turn become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a mission these men had. And what a joy it is to be called out of darkness into the marvelous light that is the kingdom of God and have the opportunity to help others to come to know Jesus Christ. There's a fable, it's not true, but it proves a good point about when Jesus ascended to heaven. He was greeted by the archangel Gabriel, and Gabriel said, Master, what have you been doing? Jesus responded, I have been spending the last three and a half years pouring in to twelve men one who has deserted me. And he said, Sir, what if these men fail? What is your backup plan? To which Jesus says, I have no other plan but people. Do you know God chose ordinary people to carry forth the mission? If we were to go to Acts chapter 4, we read these words. After John and Peter had been spreading the gospel. They were brought before the Sanhedrin. That would be the governors with regard to internal affairs within Israel, Jewish leaders. And they were giving them what for, for preaching the gospel. But then when they backed off and they began to talk after maybe dismissing those two apostles, they the Scripture says they recognized that they were ordinary, uneducated men, 
but they had been with Jesus. The only qualification you and I need to be used by God to introduce people to Him and to bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, the only qualification is that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. And we spend time with Him. Not off and on, but we have a habit of spending time with the Lord. We know He's with us wherever we go. And we take advantage of every opportunity which He gives us to represent Him, just like these men did. They had some hesitation, we know that. But these insiders, we're insiders, we know. We've been let in on the great secret of the gospel. Paul calls it the mystery of the gospel and how God has given us as so-called ordinary people extraordinary power by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, for the remainder of our time, let's look at the interpreter of the situation as it relates to the Greeks, the inquirers, as well as to the insiders in the circle of Christ's influence. The interpreter, of course, is Jesus himself. So let's take a look at what Jesus says to the, to the news that Andrew and Philip brought about these Greeks who are inquiring. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Here, and then the last thing we hear Jesus say from the cross is said similarly, the time, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That word, be glorified, is a word which means that time came and it stands even to this moment. He had finished the work which God had given him to do. He was ready for what lay ahead of him. And then... At the end of his life on the cross, he said, it is finished, which translates only one word in his language. He just uttered this word. And in so saying, it is finished, he meant he had paid in full for the sins of the world. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Perhaps you're familiar with Daniel chapter 7, where the writer talks about the Son of Man. And by the way, the definite article is not used in the Hebrew language. It's not the Son of Man, a Son of Man. And that really captures who Jesus was. He identified with us. Jesus uses this designation about himself when he talks about himself more than any other designation, the Son of Man. In that chapter in Daniel 7, the prophet talks about some rather savage, sadistic animals which represent certain figures or nations that are opposed to the Jewish people. Babylon, Assyria, the Medes and the Persians. He begins by describing a lion which had eagle's wings. That would be sort of terrifying to see something like that. Then he can, goes forward talking about a bear who raises up on one side and has three ribs in its mouth. And then he talks about a leopard which has four ring, wings and four heads. And then he talks about the most gruesome of all these beasts, if you will. And this one is described as a beast. 
And this beast has iron teeth, and he has ten heads. That would be the Antichrist, for sure. But then, when it comes to speaking about the Son of Man, God talks in this way about the Son of Man. He's not savage. He's not sadistic. He is gentle and kind. This is the Son of Man when He came the first time. Now, the people who were listening to Jesus speak, of course, were His apostles. But undoubtedly, there were other people who were listening in to what Jesus said. We know that because of what follows this text. God willing, we'll look at that next week together. But what we do know is that those people had been anticipating for centuries the appearance of the Son of Man. After the New Testament came into being, after 400 years of silence by God, there was a lot of speculation about what the Son of Man would do. But the general sense was that the Son of Man would come to this weak nation of Israel, this powerless nation, and He would deliver them from all their Gentile oppressors after so many generations of being oppressed. They were so excited. There was a book written in the intertestamental period between Malachi and John the Baptist, and it was called the Book of Enoch. And in the book, it talks about how God is, in effect, holding back the Son of Man and getting ready to unleash Him at an appropriate time. Well, that is apocryphal literature. It's not biblical literature in the sense it's part of our Bible. But that gives you an idea what these people were expecting. And when they saw Jesus, they were expecting Him to be this. And when He said, I am the Son of Man, in effect, it's time for Him to be glorified, they weren't thinking about a cross. They were thinking about a victory and extermination of the Romans and their rising to power out of the ashes, as it were. I'm talking about Jews rising to power, the nation of Israel. So, this particular statement of Jesus caught those people off guard. Jesus, the Son of Man, is one who knew what His destiny was. His glorification was going to be not sitting on some earthly throne and meeting out judgment at that moment. But He was going to be sitting on a different kind of throne, on a cross, in order that we, even today, could come to know Him just like those who heard Him make this declaration. So, He interpreted who He was. He was the Son of Man. But He also interpreted His mission. His mission was to be that of a Savior. We know Jesus was seen in that light. Remember when he interacted with the Samaritan woman at the well? And she went in after coming to know Jesus as her Messiah, as her Lord. And she just spread the word all over the village she was from. And the people were talking about how he, after they went out to see him by the well and heard the gospel from his own mouth, they were people who were saying, now we know he is the Savior of the world. Not just of the house of Israel, but to the entire world, this one, this Savior. 
the Savior who said himself about himself, the Son of Man, has come to seek and to save that which is lost. This is what Jesus' mission is, to save us from our sins. And not only ours, but people who still have not heard the gospel. He was a servant, Savior. In Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. His greatest service was to die for us, to give his life for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for his enemies, in effect. Look what he goes on to say here in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. He's talking about himself. He was God and still is God. He always had been God. He was human at this time as well, fully man, fully God. But he had to die in order to accomplish the mission of glorifying God the Father. That was why Jesus came, to bring glory to God the Father. And he goes on to say, but if that seed dies, and interestingly, Jesus is described in the book of Galatians, for instance, as the seed of God. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The picture is clear. Without death of the seed, there is no crop. Without death of Christ, there is no worldwide gathering of mankind. Those who know Jesus, at least, and have eternal life, have been called to follow Him. So his mission is interpreted by Jesus here. He's on a mission to save those who will put their trust in him alone for salvation. But then he interpreted this plan for his disciples too. Now turn to chapter 13 just a moment and let's look at verse 15. John 13:15 says, "For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you." Jesus is telling his apostles that they are to serve each other as he had served them by washing their feet. But this is a principle that applies across the board. Whatever Jesus does for us, he wants us to imitate him. He wants us to follow his example. And that example is given to us in this passage of Scripture, how we, not unlike Jesus... We have to die, as it were. We have to give up control of our lives in order to bear much fruit. Now, if we were to go to John 15, 8, and if you want to go ahead and look at it, please do, where Jesus says that God's will for us is to glorify God, and by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. We know how Jesus bore fruit. He died for our sins. We can't die for other people's sins, but we can die to our own selfishness in order that we might be used by God to bear much fruit. That's God's mission for us. And Christ interpreted the plan that He has 
for his disciples in this passage of Scripture. The question is, are you dying to yourself? We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Look at verse 25. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. Now, what is Jesus getting at here? He uses two different words in this verse, which are translated by our English word, life. The first two references, he who loves his life loses it, it's the word suke, from which the word psyche or psychology comes, and it is used again in the second part, he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. Those two usages are that word suke. Now, what is that all about? It's about our psyche, if you will. It's about your mind, my mind. It's about our will. Perhaps the emphasis should come down most strongly upon that aspect of who we are in our life, our will. And it speaks of our emotions as well. And so in order for us to really keep our life, and the third, second word here in verse 25 is the word that is used throughout the Gospel of John to talk about eternal life or abundant life. It's a life that's qualitative. It's the very life of Christ Himself. Because Jesus describes Himself in John 14 as the life. In 11, He says, I am the resurrection and the life. It's the word zoe in the original language. We have some children in our church named Zoe. You may know someone, and that is a name which simply means life in the original language of the New Testament, the Greek language. So in order for us to have eternal life, what must we do? We must not love our own will above that of God. We are to, in effect, hate our will when it's in contradiction to God. We are by nature, when we are born, committed to self-preservation. We work hard to protect ourselves in the physical realm, in the emotional realm, in the spiritual realm. We work hard to take care of ourselves. But we have to be willing to submit ourselves and die to ourselves in order to accomplish the will of God. And that would be so that fruit would be born through our lives in people's lives whom Christ touches through us and makes disciples of through us. And whom we parent spiritually and help them to grow to the point that they're ready to multiply their lives as we help them to walk with Christ. So what we see here is if we're going to make a difference forever, what we have to do is to die to ourselves. Many of you know the name George Mueller. He was a great man of God. He was born in the country of Holland, I believe, or Germany. I can't remember for sure. But he made his way as a young man to Great Britain. He became a citizen of Great Britain. He became a believer in Jesus. God used him mightily to take care of so many orphans. And he never once asked anybody for help financially. Wouldn't you like to have a pastor like that? It'd be awesome, wouldn't it? He never asked once. When his life ended, there was a book 
it was the book that talked about all the contributions which had come in. He was a man who was very careful to have open books for those who were on his board, if you will, those who would hold him accountable for his work to see. And as his book was read, of accounts was read, there were many, many entries which said an anonymous donor, an anonymous donor. Literally tens of thousands of British pounds sterling had been given. And it was concluded that that particular anonymous donor was none other than Mr. Mueller himself. And he didn't ever have a way of making money. The Lord just gave it to him because he was in the work of the Lord, serving like Christ, trusting the Lord, taking care of those orphans. When he was asked one day what the secret of his great success was, he said, I died one day. I died to George Mueller, his opinions, his preferences, his tastes, and his will. I died to what the world would think of me, whether they complimented me or they condemned me. I died to what my brothers in Christ would think of me. I died to their approval. I died to their censure. I died in order to be true to the Lord Jesus Christ. And from that day forward, I committed to be a person who studied to show himself approved unto God. That's what Christ would call us to do. To be men and women who die to ourselves. To surrender. Here are things we should say to the Lord. If we're really serious about making a difference, and we really want to be what Christ calls us to be as His disciples, if we really want to live this life to the max, talking about in this life, we're to adopt, I'm just going to use three words. Whatever, wherever, whenever. That's the way we should relate to the Lord. Jesus related that way to the Father, didn't He? And He wants us to imitate Him. And if we are going to be men and women who bear much fruit, and the result of that is not only is our discipleship verified by our much fruit bearing, but our Father will be glorified. We have to have that mentality. Whatever you want me to do, Lord, wow. It's a turning point in a man's or a woman's life. A huge turning point. When that person comes to the place saying, Lord, I surrender my life to you. I'm taking my hands off of my life. My life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. Oh, Lord, please glorify you in my body. This is what the Word of God says about me. It's what it says about you. God has created us in Christ Jesus to do good works, which He prepared in advance for us to do. For what purpose? That we may let our light shine before people so that they will see our good works and bring glory to God the Father. Whatever, Lord. God may call you to poverty. God may call you to a place where you will be despised by men. God 
may call you to a place where you're forgotten for all practical purposes. You're ignored. You're mistreated. God may call you to do whatever, whenever, wherever. But you know God's omnipresent? Did you know that? That's good, isn't it? Wherever you and I go, He is with us. Look at verse 26. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. This is the characteristic call to discipleship that Jesus issues. Let him follow me. Follow me. And where I am, this is a hallelujah statement, by the way, therefore shall my servant also be. We follow Jesus. And that ensures that He's with us. And He's going to support us. He's going to encourage us. He is going to allow the right amount of affliction to enter our lives to keep us humble. To help us to become like Jesus Himself who learned obedience through what He suffered. If anyone serves Me, the Father will honor Him. That's awesome to think about. When it's all said and done, and you and I stand before the Lord, you know what? There's only one opinion that's going to matter about me or you. What is it? Whose is it? It's the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father. We need to quit living for other people. That doesn't mean we're to be rude to people. To the contrary, we're going to love people. We're going to love Jesus more. That's the point. He is our Master. He is our King. We are His servants. And dare I say it, we are His slaves. That's the terminology. And what did Jesus do in His humanity? He, the Bible says we should have this attitude, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but He made Himself nothing. The Son of God, the Son of Man, made Himself nothing. He took on the form of a slave. The NIV says a servant. Poor translation. Slave. Took on that role and humbled himself. Became obedient to death. Jesus never asked you and me to do something. He has not already blazed the trail in doing. We say, well, he's God and, and I'm not. Well, look, hey, where does Christ dwell if you know it? Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. He says later in that same book of Galatians, the sixth chapter, if I'm going to boast about anything, I'm going to boast in the cross of Jesus Christ exclusively. What's he saying? I'm going to boast in the fact that Christ died for me, He's come to indwell me, and I am apart from His grace, I am done. Because of who I am in sin. But God has come and He's placed me in Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord for that. Self-denial is part of this. Paderewski, you know the name if you're a musician. or studied the history of music. Paderewski was a Polish composer, pianist. And I learned in preparation for this message, if I had known it, I forgot. He was also the prime minister of Poland. And he was the one who signed the Treaty of Versailles, ending and setting the terms 
for punishment to the Germans at the end of the war. He was giving a concert, and after he gave this brilliant piano concert, a lady who was very uh, adoring came to him and said, Mr. Paderewski, you were a genius tonight. And he said in his own droll way, Madam, before I was a genius, I was a drudge. Meaning he worked hard to get where he got. He denied himself a lot of pleasures, so to speak, in order that he could do that. Jim Ryan, some of you remember Jim Ryan. He was the young man, 1967, I believe it was, in the 60s at least, that he set a world record. He's the last American to hold the world record in the mile run. He set it as a teenager. It's unheard of. When he was asked about how he got to that level, he said, first of all, I ran until I felt I could not run one more step. And then I ran until my lungs felt like they were going to burst. And I ran until I thought I was going to pass out. And then there was progress. He learned to discipline himself. Here's a musician and an athlete. Men who were very self-disciplined. In the case of Paderewski, I don't know about his spiritual life. Couldn't find anything about it. In the case of Jim Ryan, Jim Ryan was a born-again Christian when he was running in that way and continues to follow Christ as far as I know. Every indication would indicate that he's doing that for sure. It's only in death that life springs forth. This is the week that we celebrate Independence Day. And I was thinking about that yesterday, and I've been thinking about today. I've been thinking about what our freedom has cost so many people in the history of this nation. Over 660,000 men and women have died in combat in the history of our nation. The war which claimed most of those lives, over 290,000 lives, was World War II. A bitter, brutal war. On the 22nd of this month, the 75th anniversary of Operation Iceberg was remembered. I couldn't say it was necessarily celebrated. It was so gruesome. The loss of life on both sides, particularly on the Japanese side, was horrendous. Over 12,000 American GIs died in that particular event. But what we do know is those men died to preserve our freedom. And if you go back to the Revolutionary War, 8,000 colonials died to get our freedom. That's a lot of people when you consider the population of the U.S. at that time. They fought to the death to win our freedom. Praise God for a country which is a country of freedom and freedom that is under the rule of law. Thank God for that. But those people died so that we could live in freedom. Do you understand? We are people who are blessed. But with all due respect to all those veterans who died, 
Jesus' death is even more significant than all of theirs put together. And His death empowers us to have servant hearts, to be men and women who represent Jesus. We're serving the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but also we're serving each other. I love it. When Jesus talks about the criteria which will be used at the great white throne judgment, as it is so called, He tells about it in Matthew 25. And what does He say? This is what He says. He says, I will know that you have been my follower because I was hungry and you fed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a prisoner and you came to see me. I was naked and you clothed me. That doesn't make us Christians. It's what a Christian is. A disciple is such a person. How we look for opportunities. Look, we ought to be falling over one another, frankly, to find a way we can serve each other. Instead of sitting around waiting to be served, we need to be like Christ. When his apostles were too cool to do the work of a slave in washing one another's feet, Jesus took off his garment, put on the towel of a slave, took a basin of water, and washed the old stinky, filthy feet of those immature disciples. We want to be people who are like Christ in all possible ways. And we have the power to do that. We are to be multipliers. The Chicago Museum of Science and Industry, when you go there, you would find a huge checkerboard on a big table. It has 64 squares. In the first square, there is one grain of wheat, one seed. And then it's doubled every square until you get to the eighth square. I believe there's 128 at the eighth square. And... The others are empty because there's a sign that says, if we were to go all the way to the 64th square, there would be enough seeds, enough kernels of wheat to cover the entire subcontinent of India and 50 feet high. Wow. One seed willing to die gives life. Spiritually speaking, you may say, there's no way, Mike then I can reach this world like you're talking about. Well, I'm not the one who's told you to do it. The Lord said, die and you'll bear fruit. He's the only one who can make fruit, but He is in us and we multiply. God wants that. A group of missionaries way back in the bush were visited by some Americans who were on a tour in that area to see missions that they supported. And they were without any kind of conveniences that they would have if they had been in the U.S. And one of the people who was in the group visiting said, you're buried back here. And one of the women said this with a smile on her face, not sarcastically or super spiritually. She said, we're not buried, we're planted here. We come to die here to serve the Lord. Yes. We must bury our personal ambition, our personal aim, if it 
is in the way of our pleasing God. Our hobbies, our pastime, certainly sin, we're to do away with it. In the teaching of Jesus, not just in this passage, but all, all over, there's a lot of contrast. But in this passage, let me show some of the contrast. Long, there's either loneliness or fruitfulness. The biggest, quickest way to get rid of loneliness is to minister to other people in the name of the Lord. Because He's with us when we're serving Him, right? So we have Jesus there with us, and in His presence there is fullness of joy. But a quick way. Loneliness or fruitfulness. I think of two women in particular. particular Henrietta Mears and Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael's life is described in a book called A Chance to Die. She took care of little waifs of girls who were abandoned in India and were probably destined to become prostitutes owned by someone who pimped them out. She was such a godly woman. God used her mightily. So much so that when Billy Graham visited her home, he walked into her room in her cottage. And do you know what he did? The moment he walked in, he burst into tears. The presence of the Holy Spirit was so strong. And then the other, Henrietta Mears, quite a different lady, single lady. Both these women were single. Henrietta Mears was responsible, so it said, for 400 people, mostly males, who went into leadership roles in evangelicalism in America, among whom were Billy Graham and Bill Bright. And she poured her life into these people. She could have been lonely as a single person, but what did she do? She trusted the Lord. Losing your life or keeping it, that's what is contrasted here. Serving self or serving Jesus. Pleasing self or receiving the honor of God. God does not call us to be comfortable. But He does call us to be conformable, doesn't He? What does the Bible say? I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves to God as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind and prove what's that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that you've given us a clear calling to die to ourselves. Help us, Lord, to quit being sort of Christians to help us to really sell out to you. We ask this in your name. Amen.